Some of you are probably familiar with the name Paul Tripp. Paul Tripp was a student of mine before he was a colleague. And he happened to be a student in, in a class that was a very, very boring class that I was teaching. It, it was uh, research, design, statistics. And Paul, bless his heart, would be utterly disruptive in that class. He, he's like an ADHD kid who would yell out things. He would raise his hand at odd moments. But I always interpreted it as he was trying to bail all of us out from a miserable time. And so if there are any Paul Tripps in here for this, for this last 45 minutes before lunch, feel free to you know, stand up, do jumping jacks, you know, call out, say something sassy, whatever would help all of us to stay, to stay on the edge of our seats. Let's walk over to our neighbors for a moment again. They, they look at this thing that we've been calling depression. And when we hang out with them a bit, we, we find that they have invested so much time in, in money, in medications for depression, and other talk therapies for depression. We also find that, that depression has certainly not abated, that well, frankly, like almost any, uh, anything else within, within this realm of psychiatric diagnoses, the problems are increasing. Now, you wonder at some point, when will they stop increasing? Uh, Where all of us will have pieces of them all. At least, this means that there are opportunities to, for us to, to speak about depression, hopefully in ways that that go deep because eyes, our eyes have been opened by Christ. So, so we visit and we see all this flurry of work that has been done, come back to our own little gardens. And, and this is a little bit different than anxiety. You see, anxiety, you, you can open a concordance and you can find it. And it's just sort of, it's just right there. It's just easy pickings. But depression, is among dozens and dozens of other struggles that we can have that are not identified in Scripture. And, 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 and as a result, it's, in some ways, we're moving to a, a slightly different category that we need to approach in a slightly different way. You, you breeze through Scripture and you look for depression. I don't know of any particular versions that use the word, but you will find what, one or two biographies that include depression. It's not much to go on. What do you do? Get your harp out or your guitar. Or, yeah, it actually wouldn't be that bad to get Drew to come and make a house call and, and play some music for us. That's, that, that probably would be a good idea. Um, but, but scripture is not trying to identify harping as the treatment harping playing the harp. Um, uh, it's not trying, try, trying to identify that as the treatment for depression. So we look at the, Saul and I'm sort of depressed, but what do we, we don't really learn anything about it. We can look at Elijah, and, and Dale has mentioned Elijah. I got depressed. I don't know. What, what do we glean from that for the rest of us? You assign three different tasks to do. I don't, I don't know what you do. Um, so, so here's what we do. We do have confidence that, that if there is something in your life that, that you experience as life-dominating, we know the compassion of God who comes close. We know that he speaks to you. We know that. We don't necessarily know how, 
But we are at least confident of that much, so off we go. Our, we don't simply listen to Scripture, actually. This, I, hope this doesn't, I hope this sounds right to you. We're moving back and forth between listening to the person and listening to Scripture. And, and here's a time where we might want to listen to the person. Because depression is, is not identified specifically in Scripture. And also, depression is the kind of experience that not all of us have had. We are all familiar with anxiety. And we are all familiar with the blues, too. We've all felt down in our lives. But down is categorically different. It's not a spectrum where you just have a little bit of depression. It is different than the experience of depression. I don't want to minimize depression by saying it has similarities to when you lose your cat or whatever it might be. Uh, and you feel sort of bad about it. So let's begin by simply listening to what people have said. It seems appropriate. And, and then we'll ask the question, what, what is it that, that our God says? So here's... Here's just a few of the articulate spokespersons for depression. And I'll use two men who are Christian. This is Spurgeon. Of course, you'll probably identify that in the first sentence. You may be surrounded by all the comforts of life. And you may be in wretchedness more gloomy than death if the spirits be depressed. In other words, there's no reason for it. Search as you can, you will not find any reason for it. Your circumstances could be wonderful. You may have no outward cause, whatever, for sorrow, and yet in the mind be dejected. The brightest sunshine will not relieve your gloom. At such times, you're vexed with cares, haunted with dreams, scared with thoughts that distract you. You fear that your sins are not pardoned, that your past transgressions are brought to remembrance, and the punishment is being, being meted out to you in full measure. This is Spurgeon speaking from his own experience. He's not speaking because he's listened to people. He's speaking about himself. Years ago, there was a Bible translator. His name was J.B. Phillips. And what was the name of the, the, the version that he wrote? Anybody remember? Is there a Paul Tripp in here who can say it out real, real clearly? Phillips translation. Phillips translation. There you go. No, that's, yeah, that's, that makes good sense. Um, he wrote a book called The Price of Success. And, and The Price of Success was essentially J.B. Phillips trying to, um, trying to, at one point, get you ready to hear that he was depressed. And the only reason he's telling you that is because he's saying that if I, J.B. Phillips, who who is a person who's sought to follow Christ and has certainly done a lot of reading in Scripture and taking Scripture in. If I can be prone to depression, I think anybody can be. He describes it this way. The springs, a kind of deadness, he describes. The springs of creativity were suddenly dried up. The ability to communicate disappeared overnight. The feeling of being utterly drained of all emotion. What's emotion? It's life, the things that are important to you. It feels like, feels like nothing is that important to you. Or it feels that way, at least. And I simply ceased to work. It, um, it even affects his very senses. I've known people who have, have talked about depression, where one day they wake up and they notice that there are colors 
in the world. But they're not colorblind people. And that's the first indicator that this thing called depression that sat on them for no reason is now lifted in some way. Sounds are different. J.B. Phillips goes on to say that, that not only are they different, they seem things that were one time beautiful. They seem discordant. He remembered the time when he enjoyed certain kinds of music, when he was depressed. That not only did the music not give him any pleasure, but it sounded cacophonous in some way. It sounded disorganized and, and chaotic and, and, um, and hurtful. Some of you are familiar with Pablo Picasso and you wrote, he, there was this blue period where everything looks bluish and depressive. Well, is he, is he an artist who's identifying a perspective that some people can have on the world or is he drawing the world as he sees it through the, through the eyes of somebody who struggles with this thing called depression? So you listen, you listen. David Foster Wallace, some of you know him as a, um, as a very fine secular novelist. A suicidal person, a depressed person, a suicidal person is like someone trapped on the top floor of a burning skyscraper. Jumping out the window is terrifying, but staying in the burning building is becoming harder and harder to do. The pain of staying in the building is harder and harder to do. And David Foster Wallace was among those who did take his own life. As you listen, the all kinds of different images, sometimes they cluster together. Some images are heaviness, slowness, burdened. You, you just move slower, you think slower. Like this weight that, that you're carrying. Another group of images is it's like there's a nothingness, a lifelessness. It's as if good doesn't exist, or you can't feel good. There have been, there've been a few times in my life where I've had physical problems, and, and I'm a bit of a, bit of a baby on some of these things. Uh, after, after three or four days with the same physical problem, and for other people it would have resolved, it continues, and there's a, there, I move into a different way of thinking, and that is a hopelessness that says, this is the way I'm going to be for the rest of my life. I can't even remember when I felt good, and I fear that I never will. And I come out of it. But, but depression is, is you feel nothing. You feel lifelessness, and, and you can't imagine anything good. To imagine anything good, there's a vitality of soul. Yeah, I like that. That sounds great. I'd love to do that. Well, I, my wife and I have two cars, and, and, uh, and we have a little tiny wall that's on our driveway, a little half wall. And when I come around the corner to our home, I, I sort of sit up just a little bit higher in my seat because I want to see if her car's in the driveway. And if her car's in the driveway, if you had the right detectors on my body, my heart would beat a little bit quicker, and there is a certain 
There's a certain vitality in me. If you had an EG, the EG would be sort of sparking away. Depression is you, you turn the corner and you don't bother sitting up a little bit higher. And you drive and park at your home. And if the car's there or not there, it all feels exactly the same. Hugging your wife or bumping into a stranger in a plane, on, a, on, a, on a busy train, it all feels the same. There's this emptiness of soul. The, the imagery can move from emptiness and nothingness to, to darkness. It feels like death itself has sort of got its hold on you. And descriptions of hell become part of the experience. Yeah. There can be patterns in it sometimes. I've, there have been times where I've spoken to people in November who were depressed, and I stopped speaking to them in, in late March. And it has nothing to do with me. It's, there seems to be a seasonal sort of style to them. I know another woman whose depression seems to have, the postpartum birth seems to have been a catalyst to it. There's some patterns. But, um, but typically what we see with depression when you listen is, is there's no pattern. It's, it's like the mist. This is Depre it was Spurgeon's words. It's like the mist. It comes on you. And it takes this heavenly hand to, to somehow push it away because you can't fight with, with the mist. So you listen. When you're uncertain what Scripture says, you, you listen to the person. And this is a rhetorical question. Unless you're trippish today and you want to yell out, feel free, uh, because you think the person next to you is a little tired. Um, uh, what, what do you hear? In, just a, there are a couple stories, granted. There are only a few things. But I'm also relying on you as being somewhat familiar with this experience, having, perhaps having experienced it yourself or having spoken with others. What you hear is misery. That's what you hear. You hear this pain that seems relentless. And as Abraham Lincoln said, he said, if what I felt it was distributed to the entire human race, there would not be one soul who had any smile. Everyone would be equally gloomy. This, this relentless pain. And for those of you who've had relentless pain, you, you can understand how suicidal thoughts come about. At some point you think, am I going to live with this for the rest of my life? I don't, I, don't, I don't think I can live with such pain for the rest of my life. It is, it is misery. It is misery. And, and in the midst of misery, one of the things that Scripture speaks to us right off the bat is be very careful how you interpret Misery. We are people who want to find a reason for our problems. For good reason. Because if there's a reason for our problems, maybe we can do something about it. It gives us a kind of hope if we can find a cause. We are relentless in looking for, for some kind of reason. And scripture warns us against it. Dale mentioned Job. 
Why, why did the misery come on Job? You don't know. Why, why was a person born blind? You can see that you know, over the years, people had all their theories why a person was born blind. Somebody had to sin. That was typically the theory. The scripture, scripture warns us. To, there are some mysteries that we will not understand. And, and the cause of depression for many people is among them. That's what you hear. But again, like anxiety, the remarkable, remark, remarkable feature of the kingdom of heaven is you don't have to know the causes for something to receive comfort. You don't have to know the causes for something to, to be encouraged and to, and to encourage others. So what are we expecting? We're... We're not necessarily expecting misery will suddenly disappear. We just simply don't know. Again, Dale's been identifying that verse in John. In this world, we will have trouble indeed. And all the repentance in the world is not necessarily going to alleviate that trouble. But, but perhaps we, we find this. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and following again. Therefore, we don't lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, inwardly we can be renewed day by day. And, and those troubles that we experience, now Paul can get away with saying this, uh, are the, the light and momentary troubles that we experience. He's saying this in 2 Corinthians, and we know that his, he's very familiar with troubles of all ilk. But he calls them our light and momentary troubles. If, 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 if one of us might say that to somebody else, it would be unhelpful. But somebody who's familiar with troubles and calling them light and momentary, we listen just a little bit more. And he, our light and momentary troubles, they, they somehow accrue to this weight of eternal glory that outweighs the trouble. And the picture is a kind of scales of justice, if you will, where all the weight is, is on the misery. Perhaps, with 2 Corinthians 4, and other passages that speak about the comfort of God, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Perhaps what the Apostle Paul is saying is there are, there are things that we anticipate, that there is hope. And these things are so weighty because they have eternal weight, more than temporal weight. Because they have eternal weight, they have the capacity to begin to outweigh the, the treacherous troubles of life. Perhaps we can, we can um, set something like that as, as a way to speak of the glory of God. We come to him and, and say, for somebody who's struggling with depression, Lord, we pray, according to your word, that you would give us these glory weights that begin to outweigh the suffering. We would see these glory weights. We would be able to see good in, in the weight, in in, this, in, in, in even in the midst of something that keeps speaking of death. So, off we go into Scripture. Scripture is familiar with misery. And we have the God of, of compassion who speaks in so many different ways. So let's see if we can find depression. Find a, just sort of a door into Scripture. The Word is not going to help us. Let me, let me encourage you to cheat just a bit. 
When in doubt, you can move in by way of the exodus, the wilderness experience, or the exile, which is the wilderness experience squared. Uh, in the wilderness, and I think, I think scripture invites us to this, that the wilderness is a place where you look around with your eyes and it is utterly destitute. There are no signs of life. Actually, there are some wild animals that can kill you and, and there, are, there are enemies around and you have no idea when, when they are going to show up. But there seem to be no signs of life in the wilderness. And, and it is hard to see our God in such a place because the wilderness speaks so, so loudly. The other thing that we find in the wilderness, now we have to move the Exodus account all, all the way into the New Testament. Satan is in the background in the, in the wilderness account in, in, in the Exodus of Egypt, but he's not in the background when Jesus goes into the wilderness. So we see the wilderness sword, it's in its fuller form. The Lord is in the wilderness, the one who never leaves and never forsakes. Satan is also in the wilderness. And Satan seems like an opportunist, not omnipresent, but seems like an opportunist who, who knows when we are more susceptible. And the wilderness is a fine time to, to find susceptible people. Does he really care? Is he, is he really with you? Wouldn't, wouldn't a good father make some kind of appearance? Reveal to you tangibly some evidences of life? Wonder what's wrong with you. Wonder why, why he's silent before you. It's, you, you see what we've just done, by the way? We've, when in doubt, you cheat, you're going through the wilderness. A destitute place. It is not unusual for God's people to find themselves in circumstances that seem utterly devoid of life. But what scripture immediately has done is it puts the wilderness in three dimensions. The Lord himself is with us in the wilderness. A cloud that is before us. A pillar of fire that is after us. And Satan himself is in the wilderness. Given that, there's, there's directions that are offered. That, that depression is an occasion for spiritual war. And we don't, know, we don't know the reason why a person is depressed. But we do know that certain kinds of misery are, are these satanic occasions. Does he care? Is he good? Does anything matter? All right? We're in. We're into the scripture. And we're in by one episode, but now scripture should open up in all kinds of ways. There's this back and forth. We are brought into the story of scripture, and then we respond. Now, a lifeless person, when you're depressed, to respond seems like almost an utter Utter impossibility, and it is. But this is how we respond. It's going to sound familiar from what we talked about earlier this morning. We cry out to the Lord. But let me, let me spend a little bit more time on that. We cry out to the Lord. 
This is not simply something we do. This is, this is who we are. This is, this is the way of life. We are criers out to the Lord. And, 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 and consider this. Scripture, scripture compels us to cry out to him. Psalm 62, 8. Trust in him at all times. Pour out your heart before him. We know that. But there's a difference in my own life between knowing it and how do I do it? How often over the course of a day have I poured out my heart to the Lord? So so recognize that this is not a matter of intellectual awareness. This is a matter of personal responsiveness. And it's not that easy. So speak. Cry out to the Lord. Speak to him. Pour out your heart to him. And do you need help? Because there are some times where pain just seems ineffable. You, you, have, you have a million words for it and you have no words for it. And those times, what do we do? We, we have the Psalms, which, which in, in some ways, they're the Lord saying to us, what's important to you? Speak, speak to me from your heart. Speak about the things that are, that are wonderful. Speak about your dreams. Speak about the things that are really, really hard. And you can speak about the details of your day. You can speak about sports too if you'd like. But I'd prefer you speak about those things that are most important to you. That's the question that seems to be the impetus behind all the Psalms. And, and if in response to that question we feel blank, well, the Psalms can help us. Such as, and you probably anticipate that this is where we might go. Psalm 88, O Lord, God who saves me day and night, I cry out before you. Now that is a great start. If you're struggling with depression, you have just been, you've been called up short even in that very first statement because you do not cry out day and night. And suddenly the psalmist has is, is, is said, follow me. I'll give you some words to speak, but follow me because I'm a little bit out ahead of you. I know where to go, and here's a place to go. Let's, let's cry out once, and then let's do it again. Let's do it again, and let's aim for day and night. For my soul is full of trouble. My life draws near the grave. You see, it's death. These attachments of death, they seem to be dragging the person into it. I am counted among those who go down in the pit. I am like a man without strength. I'm set, apart from, I'm set apart with a death, like the slain who lie in the grave. This is the nature of depression. Those you remember no more are cut off from your care. But I cry to you for help, O Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Here is the Lord who gives us words to speak to him. But you see, the Psalms, they, they function in different layers. And in the Psalms, they're, they're, actually, they're actually from the divine singer himself. These are the Psalms of the Messiah that have, that, have, that have come earlier than he appeared on earth. These are the Psalms of Jesus. And all of a sudden, you recognize that you are not quite as alone as you anticipated. And, and it's Jesus himself who, who brings this, this Psalm to appear in the tabernacle worship periodically so we can all speak it together. Speak to the Lord. It, it, it sounds so simple. Uh, but it is a 
profound act of faith. Because a depressed person does not feel anything good. They do not feel that God is present. They do not feel that God responds. But for them to call out, it is because the Spirit of God is alive within them and and they have said, yes, Lord, I believe. And they cry out. question that we could have about some of the, um, the men who appeared in Hebrews 11, this, these heroes of the faith, is why are they there? Uh, Samson would be among them. Um, he seems like a bad guy. <laughs> he's strong and all that, but you know, whatever. Um, he, he just, he's just a person run by his appetites. And he shows up as one of the heroes of faith. And if we know something about the ways of God, here is one reason. This is toward the end of his life, but it doesn't matter when it appeared. Then, Satan, then Samson, tied to the pillars at that point, called out to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord God. I, I don't have to read the rest. It doesn't matter what it is. He's calling out to the Lord. He doesn't just know what God has said. He knows that we live in this intensely personal world and and the Lord speaks to us and he invites us, he implores us to speak with him. That's the way things work in the kingdom of heaven. And Satan and Samson, at this point, it's the one time he cries out. It doesn't matter if he did it in the beginning of of his call to being a judge or the end. He did it. And for that reason alone, he is a fine person to emulate. What he says is, you know how it goes, oh Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me. Just this once, oh God, that I might be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. It's not a great calling out in some ways, <laughs> but, but it doesn't matter. It's, he's calling out to the God because he knows that he is needy and he knows that his God hears and his God is strong. And also the avenge, the avenging is not simply personal personal justice, it is, it is for the good of the people as well. So, we could, we could stop anywhere here. We've listened, and we found a, a bit of an entrance into scripture. The wilderness, which is one of, the, one of the primary motifs that go throughout scripture, with Jesus himself entering into that particular motif. We could stop now, where do something, say something, respond. It sounds really easy, but it's not. You can only do it by faith. And when you cry out to the Lord, that is aliveness of soul in the midst of what feels like death. There you go, time for lunch. Actually, we have a little bit of time left. Um, uh, but then we could go dot, 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 so on and so on, and, and there's so much more. And here is the so much more. We, Lord brings us into Scripture, we speak to him, then we listen to him. And, and here are some of the things that, that we could do with a person who's struggling with depression. We asked him about the sermon. Did you hear anything in the sermon? You didn't hear anything? Well, life 
is evidence that you came and you worship with God's people. You got out of bed this morning and, and by faith you joined God's people. So there's already evidences of life. Here's what the sermon was about. Here's, here's what I heard in the sermon. Let me pray. Let us pray together that, that this particular passage that we heard preached would be lively in our own souls. Now, what, what more simple thing could we possibly do? But you see what you're doing? Your, your life, you, you, what you are hoping to do is you're hoping to give the depressed person the opportunity to, to distinguish between life and death because they all sound sort of the same at this point. And they are not the same. And you're trying to give him or her ears that hear life. And life resides in the scriptures, it points to Jesus Christ, and you just talk about a sermon. You, you read a passage. Last night I began to go through Romans. And this is simplistic, I realize, but I just was looking for the word life. That would be... That would be one of the things you could do with a depressed person. And by the way, you're going to have to do it with him or her because they're not going to be able to read on their own. If they read on their own, you just are utterly inspired by the power in their lives that God has given them. If they can't, what do you do? You just read it together. And, and you, you stop occasionally. And you ask them to read. And you ask for them to interpret and, and riff and... Maybe hold up a finger when, when there's a little spark of life that, that somehow is spoken into their soul by the text. And, and then we remember that, that this, what, what are we doing? We're looking to distinguish. We're looking to distinguish where is the life we want to face toward it and discern these ultimately satanic overtones to the death that we already experience. And every once in a while, we remember that we are not walking by sight, but walking by faith. No. I, I walk by sight a lot. I, I get up in the morning. I, I don't know what it's like for you, but when I get up in the morning, I always feel worse than when I went to bed. It's, it's always been a mystery to me. I, I feel fine when I go to bed. I wake up and I feel horribly tired and I don't know. But... Um, but I always get out of bed. You know why? Because I want to. I want to. There, my wife is, is, is going to be up. I want to see her. I, there are things in the day that I want to do. I walk by sight a whole lot. What would it be like to wake up in the morning and you're in bed and you feel nothing? There's no reason to get out of bed. You just stay in bed. Because we are animated by what we feel so often. Well, it's at that point that we move into a very different sensory modality. And we, oh, Jesus in the wilderness. We, we live by the very words of God. That is the food. Oh, that's what the manna pointed to, Deuteronomy says. We live by the very words of God. Those are life and we feed in the words of the Father. What words do you hear? What words? This is a question we could ask each other if we're struggling with depression. What words do you hear from the Father that, that are your manna today? 
And the sensory, the sense that we're seeking to develop is we believe. God has spoken and we believe and we believe that more than we believe the things that darkness tries to say to us. It's not easy. We, we walk with a person. Learn to distinguish where is the life. Listen for it. Accumulate words of life. And then don't simply want to understand them. We want to respond to them. And perhaps, perhaps we can be, or it can be Baptists or Charismatics. Baptists and Charismatics seem to have the corner of the market on amen. We're, I'm a Presbyterian. We just don't do amen enough. But amen is what? It's a response. It's, it's a kind of, yes, I believe this. I believe it. And then we continue to walk along with the person. And we hear their story a bit more. And as we hear their story, there are things you don't understand about depression, but, but you find other common features of humanity that begin to appear. A woman who had gone around the country looking for treatments for depression. And I just happened to live in the area of the most recent stop. I had no idea what to do with her. Just tried everything. And, and one time she said she had, a, um, she had a kind of waking dream. And, and the dream was that she was sitting on a chair. And this long line of people were coming to her. And they were coming and asking her forgiveness for everything they'd done. And as you see the picture, she was on a throne. And it was, come and kiss the ring. And I'll decide whether I allow you in my kingdom or not. What do you what do you do? Well, you sound like you are angry with a lot of people. <laughs> now, is that the cause of the person's depression? We don't know. It doesn't matter. The depressed person is a normal person just like ourselves, and and there are places where anger might be apparent in their lives. And what do you do? Let's together, let's together go to the one who was never angry because of what was done to him, ever, ever. Jesus was angry on behalf of others who, 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 were, who were oppressed, but he was never angry when he was personally offended, when he was tested by the Pharisees. What is it? It's just an occasion to say, who is this guy? How did he do it? And he, as we're going to talk about after lunch, he is the true human being. You see, it's, what are you, what are you doing? You're just having a normal conversation with a person who's been struggling with depression. In the course of the conversation, you find little pieces of anger that are floating around and you, you consider them. Sometimes you'll find guilt. Spurgeon would certainly say that. That, um, that forgiveness of sins is it's hard to imagine. Because you can't, it's hard to imagine anything good. And so, so sins are, are not forgiven. Well, if there's anything that would be a fun feast, if there's anything the gospel is seeking to speak to, it's forgiveness of sins. And it's, it's oftentimes this gospel for forgiveness of sins, which is not the only thing that Christ has done at the cross, but it is, it is a nice sum of all kinds of things that he's done. So we speak about forgiveness of sins. 
and, and then it seems too good to be true. It seems like it's true for you, but not true for, for me. In which case, what do you do? Do you hear what you're saying, by the way? You are saying that what God has said is not true. You are suggesting that there are good people out there who have somehow participated in their forgiveness. They've earned it a bit, and you are this wretched soul, and you haven't. You see what you're doing. You are, you are, you're, you're questioning the very words of God. You know why he forgives? He forgives because it makes his name glorious. Because nobody else forgives in the way that he does. No human, no other invented gods. Confess your unbelief. Let's confess it together. And believe what he has spoken. And enter into something like John chapter 13, where we say we're not even, we're not even qualified to be at this table, yeah, but we enter into Peter's experience. And you know, wash, wash my whole being. And Jesus says, well, just your feet. Because you have already been washed. Because you've cried out to the Lord, which is an expression of your faith in him. As you walk with those who are depressed, you will find fears and guilt and shame and anger. Things that are common to humanity. And you speak of them together. And then you repeat. The, you're not a consultant. You are a friend. A friend walks with somebody for a longer period of time. You persist. You come back and you read scripture again the next day. You text them scripture the following day. And you respond together. And pretty soon, by the way, what's gonna happen is that, is that and this is, t- this is typical in our ministry with each other, you don't know anything about depression, you haven't experienced depression perhaps, so it's the, it's the person's struggle, but at some point you're going to be saying we. Because the better you know somebody, the more you find a certain commonality. Whatever they need, you need the same thing. And so you cry out in the midst of your own trouble that, that there, there would be manna for your soul in the very words of God. You would have the person who's depressed, you would have them pray for you. Dot, da, dot, da, dot, dot. And... The scripture is never ending in its encouragement and comfort and fine words when we don't even understand the ins and outs of this particular misery. People do, of course, commit suicide. I had a letter from a family at my desk for decades. They thanked me for talking to their daughter who had ultimately committed suicide. What do we do? We're people who care about life. And in the nature of depression, if you've really experienced depression, you have thought about taking your own life. It it doesn't mean you've owned the thought, but it has come into your mind. And you're surprised the first time it came into your mind, but it came into your mind all the same because you can't imagine continuing in the pain that you experience. What do we do? We, We hear the cries of their soul. We speak those things to the Lord. Death sometimes seems preferable to life. We look for life together. We draw in other friends. What happens is just sort of normal. We we ask for more in the body of Christ to participate, to know, to care for, maybe to 
to be over their house at times when things are especially difficult. We cry out to the Lord together on behalf of the person. We do ordinary expressions of, of love. And um, it just so happens that that such a ministry is, is fruitful. I know people who struggle with depression and, and, um, and they're, they're real people. They, they say, I couldn't have done it without my friends. As far as, as far as they know, what they said was never relevant. But love is recognizable. And love wasn't a cure, but was a cushion. It, it, um, it somehow was used to strengthen me when the walk seemed impossible. What you'll find, even in the professional literature about depression, is it's not these grand insights that somehow are, that people speak of as, as somehow being helpful. It's ordinary expressions of patience and kindness. And, and we have ordinary expressions of patience and kindness. And we also have the mind of God that has been revealed to us in the midst of our miseries. Let me pray. I simply pray for for those, especially within the body of Christ, those here who are familiar with depression, who are, who are walking with those who are depressed, and it seems like an interminable path. It seems like a path that, that is bleak from start to finish. Would you grant them, Father, people? Would you grant them your word? Would, would you grant them faith to be able to feed on your word? And would you sustain them? today, and then tomorrow, and then the next day. And in doing this, would you, would you strengthen us all to be able to love well in the name of Christ. Amen.